Good morning, church. It's great to be with you again. It's been about a year since I was here. I was here last February, and I recognize and remember a number of your faces. Uh, A lot has changed in our world over the last year since I was here. Uh, But the one thing that definitely remains the same is Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his unchanging word. And uh, we're going to celebrate and delight in both of those this morning. Uh, It's also a real joy to be with your pastor and his family. Uh, Jeremy and Sarah, uh, as Jeremy mentioned, are longtime friends, and we've served in a lot of different places and a lot of different continents with a lot of good people, Uh, but Jeremy and Sarah are among our favorite that we've served with, and uh, we value their friendship. And uh, you are really blessed as a church to have them serving you here today um, in these last few years. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 17 to 20. I trust, and knowing Jeremy, he is regularly, as he opens the Word of God to you each week, uh, preaching Christ from Scripture and pastoring you to read your Bible so that you always read your Bible to focus on Jesus Christ and the Gospel. And he should be. If he's not, you need to get a new pastor. Uh, But I know he is. But maybe you don't think as much, how does Jesus Christ teach us to think about the Bible? Yes, we should read the Bible with a focus on Jesus, and we even talk more about that today. But what does Jesus Christ teach us to think about the Bible? And that's really what we're going to explore today. We're going to look at a passage that gives us Jesus' view of Scripture. And we want to be careful if we are disciples of Jesus that we share the same view of Scripture that our King and our Redeemer has. And so we're going to read Matthew 5, 17 to 20 and explore what Jesus says about Scripture. But before I do, let me pray and ask for the assistance of the Holy Spirit as we hear and respond to God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are so thankful that you and your Son and your Spirit are the one true and living God, the unchanging God, the creator of the universe, the one who upholds it by the word of your power, the one who is the judge, and most of all, and Father, in sending your Son Jesus, you have become our Redeemer. And we are so grateful that we have life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have resurrection promise, that we have new heavens and new earth promised to us. You have been so good and so generous to us. And Lord, you have not let these things be a secret, but you have taken great pains to reveal the beauty and glory of who you are and the marvel of your plan of redemption in your holy word. We thank you for the gift of the Bible today. We thank you that it is your word, that these words that we are about to speak, though written by a man, were inspired by your Holy Spirit, and they are the very word of God. And so we pray that you would help us as we come to hear your word. We confess to you that our hearts are slow to feel, our minds are often hard to to pay attention, and we need your assistance as we hear your word. And so we plead with you that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we read and meditate on your word today, that the Holy Spirit would reveal the glory of Christ and the glory of how Christ comes to us clothed in the very words of Scripture, that we may know you through Scripture So, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time. Help me as I serve your people today. Give me assistance and help us all to sit under your word with great joy and gladness and repentance and new faith and obedience. We ask this for the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So please hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, I assure you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. And what you've just heard is God's word. Well, we're finishing up today two months into the new year. I wonder how your New Year's resolutions have fared so far through these first two months. Uh, Maybe some of you don't make them. Many do. Um, I read an article not too long ago that surveyed 29,000 people to see what their top New Year's resolutions are. And they shared the top five resolutions, and maybe you can resonate with some of these. I'm sure you can guess what the top resolution was that people make. 41% said that some form of eat better, exercise more, lose weight is the top New Year's resolution. Second was that 23%, they want to spend more time with family. Make sure the people in their life that are important, they're valuing time with. Third, 18% said they want to find a better job, new employment. Fourth, 9% say they want to spend less time on social media. Probably relates to the family issue a little bit. And then fifthly, 7% said they want to quit smoking. Maybe some of you have made those type of resolutions. I wonder how you're doing so far, two months into the new year. There was also a contest put on by another website to find humorous New Year's resolutions. And one winner was an Indian man named Devinder Singh. And he shared his progress, or you might say his regress, on his top three New Year's resolutions over five years, and I want to share a few of those with you. He said in 2016, as regards his weight, he said, I'd like to get my weight down below 130 pounds uh, before the year's over. In 2017, he said, I'll watch my calories until my weight is below 150 pounds. In 2018, he says, I'll follow my new diet until I get below 165 pounds. In 2019, he said, I'll work out once a week. And in 2020, he said, I'll drive past the gym at least once a week. He wanted to be a reader. Um, I know your pastor's family are readers. He said in 2016, I'll read at least 20 good books a year. 2017, I'll read at least 10 books a year. 2018, I'll read five books a year. 2019, I'll read some articles in the newspaper this year. And then 2020, I'll subscribe to a good humor email list this year. One more having to do with money. You'll have to listen carefully. 2016, I'll pay off my bank loan promptly. Loan singular. 2017, I'll pay off my bank loans, plural, promptly. 2018, I'll be totally out of debt by next year. 2019, I'll try to pay off the debt interest by next year. And 2020, I'll try to be out of the country by next year. (laughs) I wonder if you could resonate with the regress of making resolutions and falling from them. And perhaps especially if you name yourself a Christian here today, at some point you probably say, and it may not be for a New Year's resolution, it may just be a point in your life where you say, I really need to read the Bible more. I really maybe need to read through the Bible in a Year program, or I want to do my devotions or quiet time every day, depending on what you call it. I suspect if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point... You've made some sort of resolution like that. And maybe even at the beginning of this year, you made a New Year's resolution to be in God's word more, to let God's word fill your life more. And I wonder how that's gone for you, whether it was a New Year's resolution or a previous resolution. 
Well, the Bible is so important that I want us to spend some time thinking about not only why should we, if you will, resolve to read the Bible more, but why should we love God's Word? Why should God's Word be our delight? Why should it fill our lives and hearts and our prayers and our thoughts? I have much bigger plans for you today than just to get you on a Bible reading program where you might read the Bible in a year or begin to do your devotions or quiet times daily. That's great. But we don't want to just check the box mentality and move on. We want God's word to fill our lives. And I think in this passage of scripture that Jesus gives us, he gives us three reasons why we should love God's word. And so for a few minutes, I just want to explore that with you today, answering the question, why should you love the Bible? And the first one's going to come from verse 17 and 18. You should have an outline in your bulletin. And Jesus teaches us in verses 17 to 18 that we should love the Bible because every word is put there by God. Let's explore that a little bit. Look at verse 17. Jesus says something. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, law of prophets is just shorthand in Jewish circles. We're saying the Old Testament, the scriptures. And Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish them, to do away with them. Now, why might some people think that Jesus had come to abolish the law and the prophets? We'll skip ahead to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Look at Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Notice the reaction to Jesus from the crowds as they heard him teach. Matthew 7, 28 says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Well, why were they astonished? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus was correcting a lot of scribal mistakes and common mistakes about the word of God. And some people might have mistakenly thought he was going against the word of God. And Jesus says, no, don't be mistaken. I am not speaking against. I have not come to abolish the law. In fact, quite opposite, right? He says, I've not come to abolish them in verse 17. What has he done? What has he come to do? I've come to fulfill them. Everything in my life is about fulfilling everything the word of God says. And he ratchets it up in verse 18. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished and accomplished by him. So he shows us the, the highest possible regard for the word of God. He views his whole life and ministry in light of a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And this isn't just a theory for Jesus. He's not an ivory tower religious academician who, who likes to posit good things to make people think. He lived what he preached. And we see him living what he preached in Matthew chapter 4 in his famous encounter with Satan as he was fasting for 40 days and being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. We don't have time to read all of that right now. You could read it later if you're not familiar with the episode. But you may remember that every time in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, where Satan tempted Jesus to do something that was counter to his Father in heaven. How did Jesus frame his response? He would say, it is written, and then he would quote from the Old Testament. Let's look at just one instance of that, Matthew 4, 4. As Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus says in verse 4, but he answered, it is written. In other words, I'm about to quote some scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Jesus' view of Scripture. 
In the most trying times of Jesus' life, he's viewing his life, viewing the way he should think about his Father in heaven based on what God's Word says, viewing his own life in light of that, telling us that as essential as physical food is, it's not enough because we are image bearers of the living God. We live, our lives are nourished on the Word of God and not just some of the words of God. He says every word that comes from the mouth of God So where do you find every word that comes from the mouth of God? It's in the written scriptures. The very things that Jesus is quoting. Look at verse 18 of Matthew 5. Jesus continues to teach us how to think about scripture. And he says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Let me help you see the... uh, the imagery that Jesus is trying to help us to think about. When he says not an iota should pass from the law, he's talking about a yod, the smallest Hebrew letter. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 consonants, and the smallest is a yod, and it looks like an apostrophe to us. So think if I said, I'm going over to Jeremy's house. If I wrote that, I'd put an apostrophe S to show possession, and that apostrophe is much smaller than the other letters, the J, the R, the S. That's what a yod was like. It's the smallest by far, of the Hebrew letters, and Jesus is saying, even the smallest letter of the written scriptures, it will not pass away. It's put there by God. But then he takes it up a notch even more. He says, not a, not a, a dot will pass from the law. And he's talking about a tittle, which is a mark in Hebrew that distinguishes one letter from another. There are two letters in the Hebrew alphabet that look very similar to one another, a D which is like a Daleth, and an R, which is a Resh. And they, they look just the same, but the only thing that distinguishes this Daleth from a Resh is this little thing that points out of this side, and it's called a dot or a tittle. It's the tiniest mark of a letter. Jesus is making the point. It's not just there's some big grand story of Scripture that's going to be fulfilled. It's not just there's some promises. It's not even just that there's ideas he's saying every single word every letter is put there by god It is inspired by the living god it is the very word of god and you are called to live upon every word that comes from the mouth of god it's not just the promises but as we'll see in verse 19 through 20 the very moral commands of scripture everything is put there by god now let me speak to some of you who may profess, I hear Christians say this sometimes, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, he's my king and my Lord and I trust him to be my savior, but I'm not so sure about the Bible. I think there's truth in the Bible, but there may be errors in the Bible. Maybe, maybe the Bible just wasn't up to speed on what we learn about human sexuality now, or gender roles. Maybe the Bible's true in these other areas, but there's certain areas that are a mistake. And can I just say, if you find yourself in that situation as someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, someone who claims that Jesus is your Lord, and yet you doubt that this is the word of God in its entirety, that it's authoritative, you have a different view of scripture than the one you claim to be your king. You are inconsistent. Because you say, I'm following Jesus, he is my Lord, he sets the agenda, but I have a different view of scripture than what Jesus says. Because Jesus says, your king, the one you claim, if you claim to be a Christian, says that every word is put there by God. So if you find yourself at an inconsistent situation, I would challenge you to continue to meditate and think about what Jesus says about the word of God. 
that you may bring your view of God's word into line with the one whom you profess as your king and savior. Now, I suspect for many more of you who claim Jesus, you know this is the word of God. You would say and believe in the authority of scripture. But I want you to think about the implications of what Jesus is saying to us today. Every part of this book that's made of 66 books is put there by God. It is God speaking to us. Though penned by human beings, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it is God's very word to us. And it's all important. Old Testament as well as New. Leviticus as well as Romans. It's all important. One of my pet peeves is to see the little Gideon Bibles or the pocket Bibles that just have a New Testament. As if that's somehow more important than Exodus or the Psalms. Now they sometimes do put the Psalms in there. But it's all of God's word. And as Christians... We don't just read the New Testament. We read all of God's word. We live by all of God's word. I trust your pastor Jeremy is preaching to you the Old and New Testament, all of God's word. And friends, when we come to God's word, we should come with bated breath because this is the word of our glorious triune God. This is the God of all majesty coming and deigning to speak to us, his image bearers, and those he's redeemed by his grace. And so friends, that should change the way you come on Sunday mornings. To hear God's word read and preached. It should change the way you open the scriptures in your own Bible reading. That you would have this mindset. God is speaking to me. The God of glory. The God of grace. And how much should we love God's word? Because every word is put there by God. Whether you're reading in Ecclesiastes or Ephesians. And it's a reminder of why we should love God's word. Because it's all there by him. And friends, the importance of Scripture is especially seen in how it points us continually and over and over to the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ. So secondly, I want to look at verse 17 and 18 again and say that we should love God's word because it continually points us to Jesus Christ. Look at that with verse 17 with that view in mind. Again, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, you don't understand Scripture unless you find and understand how it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished and accomplished by Jesus Christ. Jesus views every aspect of his ministry, his obedience to the moral demands of Scripture, his going to the cross, his resurrection, the things he taught, the things he did, the big picture and the small things as all fulfilling Scripture. Every single part put there and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Have you ever purchased uh, self-put-together furniture from Ikea or somewhere else? You go into the shop or the Ikea and... You see it maybe on display and then you take it home and it's in a box and you have a manual and the manual has many different steps. Step one, you know, take out these parts. Step two, put these screws here. Um, I know we guys have a bad reputation for not always listening uh, to the parts and we try to figure things out. But if you, if you do what you're supposed to do, you follow every step, step by step. And when you get to the end, there's no extra parts that aren't supposed to be there. And hopefully it looks like the picture on the front or the display. You fulfilled every step, and then you have the big picture. And that's what Jesus is saying with Scripture. He fulfills every little part, and he's also the big picture. Everything points to him. Everything finds its all in him. Every promise in Scripture 
has either already been fulfilled by him or is in process of being fulfilled by him. Think about one of the great master promises of Scripture where God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, I will bless all the families of the earth through you. And really the rest of Scripture is an unfolding and a fulfillment of that covenant, that promise. And that has begun to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And as he sends us, his church, to take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as more and more people who have never heard the gospel believe into Jesus, are united to Christ, and thus become and partake of the Abrahamic promise and covenant that is being fulfilled. Not done yet. There's still many more tribes and tongues who are yet to hear and respond to the gospel. But through Jesus working through his church, that is being fulfilled. Every promise finding its yes and amen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And friends, that reminds us the Bible, before anything else, is first and foremost a story of redemption. It's a book of a God of grace coming to his rebellious creatures who can do nothing to right themselves with God and God redeeming them by his grace through his only begotten son. And yet so many people, when they come to the Bible, they come to the Bible and they think before anything else, it's just a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of advice on how I should live. And maybe if I follow those commands good enough, God will somehow love me. And maybe I'll be in relationship with him. Many have thought that. New York Times reporter A.J. Jacobs thought that, still thinks that. He was a secular Jew who grew up in New York and thought religion is, man, it's passing away. He was studying journalism in university and he thought, you know, about 10 or 20 years religion will gone by the wayside. And he, he was a secular Jew, so he didn't pay much attention to his Jewish traditions and family traditions. But as he continued to report the news and as he wrote on things, he realized as he was getting up into middle age that religion is not going away. In fact, religion seems very important to a lot of people. Maybe I've missed out on something in my Jewish heritage. And so A.J. Jacobs decided that he would read the Bible, for him, the Old Testament scriptures, and for a year he would obey every command of scripture as literally as he could and see what it did for him and then write a book on it. And so if you're familiar with how many commands Jewish rabbis say are in the Old Testament, it's about 613 so it wasn't just the things like don't murder, don't commit adultery, like Ten Commandments type stuff. It's like, you know, don't cut your beard, don't mix these things, these type of fabrics. As much as he could in the modern world, he tried to do that. And he said, this was his goal, I'm quoting from him. He says, my goal was to experience the Bible myself and find out what's good in it and what's maybe not so relevant to the 21st century. So he did that, and then in 2007, he published a book called The Year of Living Biblically, one man's humble attempt to follow the Bible as literally as possible. I wonder if some of you may be here and as you're exploring Christianity or maybe growing up in the church, you think that that's what Christianity is about. And what Mr. Jacobs has done is maybe a parable of your own ideas and heart, that this Christianity thing is just about learning some advice so that I can figure out how to be right with God and please him and maybe go to heaven or have a relationship or be forgiven. And friends, scripture and Jesus is telling us that is the wrong-headed approach. You will never write yourself through obedience to God's word because you can't keep it well enough. You see, contrary to every other world religion and every perversion of Christianity, the scripture is not forced and foremost advice about how you can save yourself. It's not that at all. 
It's an announcement of what God in his grace has done through the person and saving work of Jesus Christ and his incarnation, his life, his baptism, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his heavenly intercession right now for his people. The Bible is first and foremost a book of grace, a story of a God saving a rebellious people by grace and grace alone. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you would, one of the more important passages to give us a healthy doctrine of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And actually, I'm going to read through verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul, writing to young Timothy, says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, talking about the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you see what Paul is saying is the purpose of scripture? All of scripture is what in verse 15? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's just the Old Testament. That's not even the New Testament that gives us even greater clarity and greater explanation of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he continues to do. And so, friends, if you are not fleeing to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. I can do nothing to save myself. You're actually missing the point of Scripture. Because scripture is constantly pointing us to see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're here at the invitation of a friend and you're exploring what Christianity is about. Or maybe you've grown up in church for a long time and you have wrongly thought that Christianity is just advice. And friends, you need to be reminded it's not. It's God freely offering relationship with himself, forgiveness, acceptance, the gift of righteousness. If you will join yourself to his only son who came as a substitute for sinners, who obeyed the law of God in your stead, who died on the cross in the place of all those who would trust him, who rose again and offers himself right now freely to you through the preaching of his word. So friends, if you don't know Jesus, if you've been depending on your own obedience, turn from that and flee and trust in Jesus Christ, who even right now offers himself to you so freely and fully. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be reminded that the gospel is not simply the doorway in which we enter the Christian life and then move on to other things. The gospel is what we live by day by day because the gospel is nothing else than the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so friends, when you find yourself because you've failed God again, which you'll do every day, we sin every day, and you find yourself reluctant to open the Bible, reluctant to come to church because you think, oh, maybe I I failed God again, then you're looking to your own obedience instead of to Christ and the gospel. When you are reminded that the gospel is first of all about a God who redeems you by his grace, when you sin, you will flee to him in your private times of worship, in your public times of worship, knowing that he gladly loves you and embraces you, that he's now your father in heaven because of your faith in Christ. And we need the scriptures to constantly remind us of that, constantly point us to Jesus. I want to give you some helps because I know that people struggle to read the Bible or if they struggle when they read the Bible to think about how do, I, how do I do this? How do I read the Bible in such a way that I am focused on Jesus? 
So let me give you a few practical things that may help you. And if you've been around Christian circles for a while, you've probably seen the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, as a form of prayer. A, adoration. C, confession. T, thanksgiving. And S, supplication. I want to talk about the first three of those now and then the fourth one in my third point. But as you come to God, remember, this is the revelation of the triune God. The revelation of the one God who is, who exists as a community of three divine persons, who's all glorious. And when you come to scripture, the first thing you come for is not what is the next thing to obey. What you come to is to learn about your God. To learn about who he is. And so wherever you are, stop and think, what am I learning either explicitly or implicitly about the character of God? Who he is, what he's done. And just worship. Stop and worship. Maybe pray with your pen and write out and journal and say, God, I praise you for this, or stop and pray. I mean, think about our passage today. Think about some of the things we could adore our God for. We could adore him for the fact that he has sent his only son. We could adore him and say, God, I praise you because you've spoken in your word. God, I praise you because you're faithful to fulfill your promises. The word that we've been looking at says that all of it will be accomplished. Anytime you read scripture, get scripture to know God and commune with him and worship him and adore him before you get to the other things. And then as you adore the glory of our God, you need to begin to look at yourself and go to the sea and confess your sin. You're called to be an image bearer of the living God. And so in the very things in which you praise God for, and maybe the commands of scripture he's given, you say, how have I fallen short of that? You know, God is a God who faithfully keeps his word. God, I am really bad about keeping my word. There's times where I'm unfaithful. God, you've given me your word. Every word is put there by you. And yet I treat your word like it's a light thing. And I easily go to, to my Instagram account before I go to the Bible. I easily flip on the TV instead of having time in your word. I'm more excited about where we're going to eat on Sunday than the fact that we're going to gather as God's people and worship God. Whatever it may be, as scripture exposes you, confess that to him. Own up to it. Because then you're ready for the tea. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for who Jesus is and what he has done. You always move there. Lord, thank you. That though I'm a miserable failure at keeping your word, you sent your son Jesus to keep his, your word for me. Thank you that Jesus has accomplished my salvation. Thank you that he is the one who guides me into how I'm to think. Friends, never read your Bible and walk away without having that cross or that text take you to the cross and take you to Jesus. If you haven't celebrated God's grace in Christ, you have not read the scripture as a Christian. So never walk away from your time in God's word without reflecting and celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you're ready to get to the commands of Scripture after you've done that, after you've adored God for who he is, confessed your own sin, trusted in Christ. And then we'll get to this S in a minute. So the Bible points us to Jesus as our Savior, to find our salvation freely in him, but it also teaches us to depend on Jesus so that we can live a life that is pleasing to him. And so thirdly, I want to look at verse 19 and 20. And talk about how why we should love the Bible because it is essential to our discipleship. Look at verse 19. In light of what Jesus has said in verse 17 and 18 about the word of God. Every word is put there by God. Every word finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so he starts verse 19, therefore. There's an implication of this. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, do not disregard obedience to God's word. Don't mistake the fact that I have come to fulfill the scriptures as meaning you don't have to give attention to the moral commands of scripture. If you do that, and you teach others to do that, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, according to verse 19. And this is a common confusion where grace is clearly preached. I know your pastor is preaching to you week in, week out, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and he's absolutely right. And we have to proclaim that. We have to celebrate that. I just spent the last point saying how we have to celebrate that. But some people somehow think that that makes obedience to the commands of Scripture is now optional. Oh, Jesus has done it for me. It's not a big deal. And Jesus says it is a big deal. The moral commands of Scripture are meant to guide you. They are meant to give you the freedom of walking with me. You've been redeemed for that purpose. If you don't obey God's commands, you are sinning and should repent. You don't lose your relationship with God. You're not suddenly not a Christian anymore. But it's your duty as an image bearer of God to obey your creator and your redeemer. We need a savior because we can't keep them. And yet the way the gospel works is that we... Don't simply believe in an abstract Jesus or a person of Jesus and we put our trust in him and we're kind of checked off. And we have this distant relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that when we put our faith in Christ, we are actually joined to the person of Jesus Christ. We are united to him so that he indwells us and we indwell him. And if you are a Christian, man, woman, boy, or girl, and you have put your faith in Jesus, you are united to him and his life is in you by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit giving you a desire to obey him, a desire to find the freedom of joyfully walking in obedience to him as an expression of your love and gratitude. Now, this is a Reformed Baptist church. I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. Um, In our Reformed heritage that we somewhat commonly share, the Ten Commandments has played a central part in not only exposing our need for Christ, but as John Calvin would say, it is a third, there's a third use of the law where it teaches us how to live in our Christian freedom. How to live and follow Jesus. In my Reformed and Presbyterian heritage, we have the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is 107 questions to teach young people or new Christians theology. Who is God as Trinity? How do we think about the Word of God? What is justification? Who is Jesus? It's 107 questions. You've heard the first one, I'm sure. What is the chief end of man? Most of you could probably answer, man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy God. Some of y'all heard that, right? That's the most famous one. Of these 107 questions that equip a new Christian to understand who God is, what the gospel is, do you know how many of those 107 questions are given to explaining the Ten Commandments? What is forbidden, what is commanded? Forty. Forty out of 107 questions. They thought it was essential for a new believer to live out their freedom in Christ, to know the Ten Commandments. And the reality is many Christians today couldn't even list the Ten Commandments. I'm not saying quote it from the Bible, just list them basically in order. I was telling my kids this a couple years ago as we were serving in Sydney, Australia, and I was having them memorize the Ten Commandments and make sure they could say them. And I said, you know, I bet many, in fact, most of the people in our church that we were serving can't list the Ten Commandments in order. And I didn't say anything other than that. I didn't give them a challenge, but my kids took this as, hey, I'm going to go and talk to every person at church on Sunday and say, hey, can you give me the Ten Commandments? And so they did that to most everyone. 
and no one could do it other than another pastor. No one could list the Ten Commandments. We've fallen far from the centrality of seeing the importance of the moral commands of Scripture, which the Ten Commandments is a great summary of, because they really do show us how to live in the freedom that has been purchased for us by Christ, because the Ten Commandments and the moral commands of Scripture are nothing less than a reflection of the very character of the God who has created us and redeemed us. Look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I'm a missionary. This, this verse is important to me. This is great commission stuff. And it's important to you as a church because you're a mission-minded church. But notice what is involved when Jesus gave his commission to the church. In verse 18 to 20, he didn't just say, go to every tribe, tongue, and nation and have people profess faith in Jesus. Just tell them enough so they put their trust in me. Look at verse 18. Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's the king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How do you do this? How do you make someone a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Y'all did that for a couple folks last night. Praise God. And then 20, verse 20, teaching them to observe what? All that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. To be a disciple of Jesus is to learn all that Jesus has commanded his church to do. And to do it in dependence on him. It's essential to the discipleship process that we learn to joyfully submit to the commands of God's word. Not as a means to be saved, but because we are saved. Because God the Holy Spirit lives in us and has given us new desires to obey him. In fact, Jesus takes it up a notch if we go back to Matthew chapter 5. It sounds like in verse 19 that, you know, if you, if you don't pay much attention to the commands of Scripture, you're just kind of less in the kingdom of heaven. But he kind of takes it a step further in verse 20. In verse 20 of Matthew 5, he says, For, meaning I'm about to explain even more, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, those words would have shocked the original hearers. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious people. They were the best people at keeping God's commands, so it was thought. And yet they had a very external way of keeping them. They thought if they did just perform the action that they were okay. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying things like, you know, you haven't kept the commandment not to murder your brother unless you've actually put to death sinful anger in your heart. Just because you don't go and cut their head off or stab them with a knife or shoot them with a gun doesn't mean you haven't broken the sixth commandment not to commit murder. If you have hatred in your heart, if you're angry sinfully at your brother, you've broken the seventh commandment. Sixth commandment, I'm sorry. You haven't just kept the seventh commandment not to commit adultery if you've not done something you shouldn't do with someone who's not your spouse. He says you've broken the heart of that commandment if you've lusted after another person in your heart. And Jesus ratchets up the level of what the word of God is saying. He's telling us what it's meant to do. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you are seeking to obey Christ from the heart, not just externally, but even from the heart, you should have no assurance that you'll ever enter the kingdom of heaven. No assurance. Look what he says in Matthew 7 towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus is telling us something that's going to be shocking to many people. 
Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That's the most basic Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. He's the King. He's the Messiah. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, this is scary words. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So they've been part of the church. They've professed Jesus as Lord. It looks like great spiritual gifts have happened through them. And notice these words that many people will hear in the final day in verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You notice how he describes them, workers of lawlessness. They have disregarded the moral law of God. Now, is that because we earn salvation or earn entry into the kingdom of heaven by our obedience to the Ten Commandments? Absolutely not. But what Jesus is saying is there is a sure evidence that you are connected to me, that you are trusting in me, that you live in me and I live in you, and that is that you will love to obey me. You will repent when you sin. You will seek to learn all that I have commanded you, and in joyful dependence on me, you will seek to do it. And if you don't, you should fear that what he promises will happen in Matthew 7 may happen to you. Friends, I hope there aren't people here today who say, oh yes, I'm saved by grace. I've prayed the prayer. I've put my faith in Jesus. He's my Savior. And then you go and you live your life your merry way, however you want. There may be some of you like that here. I hope not. But if there is, let the warnings of Scripture tell you. That is not a safe place to be. That is not evidence that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. The evidence that you are is that you take God's word very seriously, joyfully seriously, but seriously. And so, friends, I have to ask you, what does your relationship to Bible reading and Bible doing, if you will, say about you? Are you really a disciple of Jesus? And if you can say, yes, I see in my heart that I'm repenting when I sin, I'm following Jesus, I have a desire... And friends, what a reminder to continue to dig into God's word joyfully. To come with great eagerness when Pastor Jeremy preaches the sermon or when one of your elders is teaching in Sunday school or in your small group study. When you come to the Bible yourself to come and to say, yes, I want to learn about the glorious character of my God. I want to learn about what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. And, and I want to see how he wants me to live in his strength so that I can be a faithful disciple. Because the Bible is essential to our discipleship. It guides us in the path that Jesus Christ, our King, wants us to walk. And that's where we get to the S of our acronym, ACTS. We looked at in the previous point, we adore God for his character. We confess our sins. We give thanksgiving for the saving work of Jesus. And then we get to the S, which is supplication. And that's where we, we look at our lives and we say, Lord, I see these areas of my life where I need to be more conformed to Jesus. Will you please work in me so that I can very specifically apply what I've read in your scripture to my life. So we don't get away from obedience, but it's not the first thing we run to, but we do in there, independence on God, because God's word is meant to guide us how to live the Christian life. I want to close by telling you a story about a lady and a pastor. Um, I don't know if this is a true story or not. I've heard it phoned around or not, but there was a pastor, we'll call him Pastor Jones, who is new to a congregation, and uh, he wanted to get to know the people in his congregation, so he decided to do a home visit and go through the membership roles and just visit every single family in the church. 
And so he called up uh, Mr. and Miss Smith and said, Mr. and Miss Smith, I'd like to come on Tuesday night and, and visit you. Is that okay? And so Mr. and Miss Smith said, hey, we'd love for you to visit, but don't just come and, and stay. Come and stay for dinner. We'd love to have a meal with you and get to know you. So the pastor says, hey, that'd be great. And so he goes on Tuesday night and has a wonderful meal with Mr. and Miss Smith. Mr. and Miss Smith, they put out their best china, their fancy silverware. Uh, Miss Smith makes her favorite casserole, and it's just a delightful dinner. Food's good. The, the, there's laughter and getting to know each other and sharing stories about coming to know Jesus, things like that. And then Pastor Jones leaves, and Mr. and Miss Smith are cleaning up. It's just been the three of them at dinner. And so Mr. Smith is dutifully bringing in the, the dirty dishes into the kitchen, and Miss Smith is washing them. And as she's washing, she says, Honey, uh, did you find a, a, another spoon? I have three plates and, and three knives and three forks, but I only see two spoons. Can, can you check on the floor and see if the third spoon you know, fell on the floor or something? And so Mr. Smith goes and looks around, and he says, Honey, I just don't see it anywhere. She goes, Well, that's really strange. And so he continues to look, and they, they never find it. Mr. Smith says, it'll probably turn up. Something weird's happened. But then this thought began to creep into Miss Smith's mind. And she thought, surely Pastor Jones didn't steal my nice silver spoon, did he? And so she asked her husband, honey, do you think Pastor Jones stole the silver spoon? He said, oh, he's a pastor. Surely he wouldn't do that. He said, okay, okay, honey. But she couldn't help every Sunday when she would sit in church as Pastor Jones was preaching, thinking, did my pastor steal my silver spoon? And that got to be where that's all she could think about as she would come to church on Sundays. And this went on for a number of months, and she would talk to her husband about it sometime. And finally, Mr. Smith said to his wife, honey, just talk to the pastor. Just talk to him one day and ask him if he stole your spoon. So after the service one day, see, the pastor goes out in the hall, and he's greeting people. People are leaving. She comes up to him and said, Pastor Jones, I have to ask you something. Do you remember that night a few months ago when you came to my house and we had that dinner? And he said, oh, yes, that's the best casserole I've ever had. And she goes, I just have to ask you something, Pastor. Did you steal my silver spoon? And the pastor just got a wry grin on his face and said, No, Miss Smith, I didn't steal your silver spoon. I just simply put it in your Bible. Friends, let's not be like Miss Smith. Let us not go months on end without opening our Bibles, without feasting on the glorious triune God of grace who reveals himself there. Let us be those who come to the word of God preached, the word of God in our private times, and delight and feast and love on our God who has loved us so well in sending his only son for us. Let us come and adore him and love his word because every word is put there by him. Let us love his word because it continually points us to Jesus. And let us love his word because it shows us how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we come to you so thankful, so thankful for the gift of scripture. So thankful that you revealed yourself so fully to us in Jesus Christ. And we must confess that we have not given a like response to your word. Your word is so glorious. And we have to confess that so many things in our world we find more exciting than the scriptures. Whether it's our social media accounts or reading a book or, or doing anything sometimes other than being in your word. Lord, forgive us for the times in which we drag ourselves to church or don't even get out of bed. Instead of coming with great eagerness to hear your word proclaimed. Father, please cause us to repent. And give us grace and renew within us a, a deep love for the scriptures. Lord, help us to come with, with such eagerness to hear your word proclaimed. Help us to talk about it with our families and our community groups and our friends. Help us to share it with others. Lord, help us to 
feast on your word privately and to memorize it and to pray through it and to view life through it. Father, do a work in us that only you can do. Make us a people who truly, truly love your word. We ask this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.